Tonight on Farage, as every single one of Boris Johnson's migrant plans to stop what's going on in English Channel falls to pieces, we ask the question, can Truss or Sunak solve this? Because if they don't, it'll do the Conservatives an enormous amount of harm, in my opinion. And joining me on Talking Pints, Tony Abbott, the former Australian Prime Minister, he solved the migrant boat crisis in Australia. We'll ask him, what is it we need to do in this country to get this right? Good evening. It was April the 14th this year and the Prime Minister went to Lyd Airport down in Kent to give the big speech on how this government was going to solve the migrant crisis. Now, normally you would have expected the Home Secretary, Priti Patel, to do this, but no. As this was the big one, the Prime Minister took charge. Let's just remind ourselves of the very specific pledges and promises Boris Johnson made on that day. That those who try to jump the queue or abuse our system will find no automatic path to settlement in our country, but rather be swiftly and humanely removed to a safe third country or their country of origin. And to identify, intercept and investigate these boats, from today, the Royal Navy will take, take over operational command from Border Force in the Channel, taking primacy for our operational response at sea, in line with many of our international partners, with the aim that no boat makes it to the UK undetected. People who do make it to the UK will be taken not to hotels at vast public expense, rather they will be housed in accommodation centres like those in Greece, with the first of these to open shortly. So from today, our new migration and economic development partnership will mean that anyone entering the UK illegally, as well as those who have arrived illegally since January the 1st, may now be relocated to Rwanda. Well, that was just four short months ago. And since the Prime Minister gave that speech, another 15,000 people have crossed the English Channel. And by the pace of the last week or two, it looks like the numbers by the end of this year, already running at double what they were at this stage last year, could be three or four times higher. There is no way of accurately predicting. And let's think about all of those promises and pledges. Number one, no more migrants will be sent to hotels, said the Prime Minister very clearly, because there was great anger as people see hotels filling up all over the country at a cost of £5 million every single day. Now, the answer was going to be Linton on Ooze, the former RAF base up in North Yorkshire. That was the first of many. What has happened there? Well, understandably, voluble, angry local protests and Linton on ooze and the idea of using camps has been dropped completely. After all, the Napier barracks near Folkestone were tried, but in the end, the migrants were so unhappy with the conditions, they actually set fire to the barracks. It was good enough for British national servicemen, but not good enough for those that crossed the English Channel in small inflatable ribs. And then, of course, the other great promise was Rwanda. Tens of thousands of people, if necessary, would be shipped off to Rwanda. Do you know how many have gone? Yes, that's right, zero. Uh, and we're told that once again there'll be more legal applications made in September and that bookings have been made for October. I promise you, viewers and listeners, not a single person, not one single person, in my opinion, will go to Rwanda. All the while, the ECHR is signed into UK law via 
Tony Blair's Human Rights Act. But the big one, the one that would sort everything out, was the Ministry of Defence were taking control of the English Channel and the Royal Navy were coming in. Wow, everybody thought. And an extra 50 million quid was given to them to do the job. I remember on day one, Tom Persglove, who was then the Minister for Illegal Immigration, sitting in this studio, I said, Tom, those naval boats are useless. The sides, the gunnels of the boats are too high to safely lift anybody out of a small rib onto the deck. He looked at me, utterly bemused, all of which showed me the disconnect that exists between government, Whitehall and the reality of what's happening out there on the ground. Every single promise made by Patel and Johnson has failed. And don't underestimate the potential political impact on this on an electorate that voted Brexit, an electorate that gave Boris Johnson a big majority. If this continues, they're in very, very big trouble on this alone, let alone the cost of living and much else. So my audience question for you today is, do you believe that Liz Truss or Rishi Sunak will solve this? Please let me know your thoughts, Farage at GBNews.UK. Well, joining me is James Heal, diary editor of The Spectator magazine, a magazine that's strongly behind the Conservative Party in this country. Um, I think the magazine's favouring Liz Truss rather more than it's favouring Rishi Sunak. Would that be fair? Um, I wouldn't go that far. I think that we haven't made any endorsement yet. No. I'm not sure yet they were going to. Um, I think both candidates have got a lot of merits and um, it's about comparing the two and seeing which will be better for the country. Really. Well, let's compare the two. Let's compare the two on this very issue. I've just said that everything Johnson said four months ago has resulted in failure. Uh, it's quite difficult to disagree with that statement, isn't it? I think when you look at the numbers, certainly, and that's those terms, and we're on course to get you know, twice of what last year, um, I think a lot of people would privately disagree with you, agree with your assessment in private in the Conservative Party. And I think when you look at the sort of dynamics of this race, I mean, both candidates are talking about Rwanda, but of course, as you said, no, so far, no one has been sent yep. to Rwanda under that scheme. So I, I was surprised by looking at the polling and how much this issue is, is figured in this race. Um, I think perhaps you might expect some more focus on this because this is considered the second most important issue well, for 2016 Leave voters. They'd rather not talk about it. It's and when they're forced to, Rishi Sunak puts out a campaign video with me in it, as if to say, I'm endorsing his stance. Specifically, what are these candidates saying that is different to what we've had for the last four months? So Rishi Sunak, for instance, wants to look at um, the definition of what it means to be an asylum seeker. And he says, I think the suggestion of that is to do with Article 3 of the ECHR. So there's a sort of legal element on that, on yep. that front. Another point in his campaign is stressing is looking at how um, taking um, uh, migrants can be part of trade deals, so making it sort of part of broader foreign policy. So we're going to sign a free trade deal post-Brexit with you, for instance, and deal with you more on international aid if you're going to take some of these um, migrants from Britain. So there's, that's one element of it as well. Um, Liz Truss, on the other hand, has, there's been some briefings about whether she would look at um, ways to turn the boats back. This was something Boris Johnson um, apparently considered in discussions, but was sort of killed in the Whitehall Wars. Yeah. Um, and that would involve things such as, you know, um, boats being used or, or even wave machines to sort of turn those boats back. Um, wave machine. I mean, can you honestly, can you imagine that we turn on wave machines, the first two boats turn over and 40 are dead? It wouldn't last long, that policy, would it? Well, this is the whole thing. And is, how many of these solutions are, first of all, going to be legal under the current settlement we've got in this country, but also politically palatable. And I think what's interesting is that you've got a whole range of, uh, of um, different dynamics in the Conservative Party going on. Um, Liz Truss and Richard have been appealing to those, but there's lots of different divergence in, in the party on whether we should be a part of the ECHR or shouldn't. Well, isn't that the big one? Because I sense, and I'm sure you do too, 
There's a growing groundswell of opinion out there in this country that says we have to change the Human Rights Act, we have to leave the ECHR. As I understand it, neither candidate actually wants to do that. Yes, you're correct on that. Um, so far, um, I think Liz Truss was, has more, perhaps more hinted towards it and said she wants to, first of all, uh, both, both candidates, I should say, want to have a British Bill of Rights. I mean, this is something we've talked about for a decade now with David Cameron, yeah. but they both want to have that as a way of taking back more control. And Dominic Raab has put that on the table yeah. already. We've talked about it. But the truth is that we can have a British Bill of Rights, but all the while we're bound by international treaty to ultimately a court in Strasbourg that can make decisions that can overrule the Bill of Rights, it, it isn't watertight, is it? I think that's something that a lot of Conservative MPs would share in that view, talking to them. Um, they're very they're skepticism of it. Obviously, they're a little bit jaded, slightly, by, by Brexit, um, but they, they are concerned about how much of what was said at the time and what they've campaigned and won their seats on in 2019 will be deliverable yeah. if they're not going to be able to deal with this in a sort of um, legal sense as well as a political sense as well. If the numbers keep climbing, and there's nothing to say they're going to stop, you know, there was clearly a big raid done by the National Crime Agency that did reduce the numbers in July, but we're back to very, very big numbers in August. It looks like Albanian gangs now having a sort of turf war with the Kurds in Calais and Dunkirk and elsewhere as to who runs this route. If this continues, how much damage does this do to the Conservative Party potentially at the next election? I think that the people who they most need to win over, the 2016 Leave voters and the 2019 Tory voters, are those who are going to be angry about this, and that could be very damaging. I think it could be. James Hill, thank you very much indeed for joining us. And James Hill there, from The Spectator, being very, very diplomatic. I think the problem may be rather worse than that for the Conservative Party, because I, I, I mean it. I know I've been pushing this for over two years, but I promise you, just looking at my email bag every day, I sense a real frustration, a real anger. And it's being directed not at the Labour Party, because they've got no solutions, and I get that. I absolutely get that and understand that. But this is a government on this issue that has consistently overpromised and under-delivered. Now, talking about the Labour Party, I said politically, I thought what Keir Starmer had done yesterday was politically very smart, but I questioned economically whether it would work. And after all, you know, it's just for six months, it's going to cost £29 billion, extend it to a year, 18 months, and suddenly you're looking at a bill as big as the furlough bill during lockdown. But how do... Price caps work in other countries. Are they effective? All I can say is I've seen already in France that a price cap that's been introduced by President Macron is leading to an almighty row that is going on. Um, and with, with EDF, uh, with now nationalisation of power stations having to happen in Argentina, a country with rampant inflation, 50% inflation, perhaps even higher than that in places. And there... You know, huge caps put on energy bills to make things cheap for consumers. And the result of that is the power and energy companies are going to have a real problem in reinvesting. And ultimately, the lights might just go out. Well, let's take a deeper dive into do price caps work? Dr. Gerard Lyons, economist and chief economic strategist at Net Wealth Investments and, of course, former advisor to Boris Johnson when he was the mayor of London. Um, Gerard, you know, I was being quite generous yesterday, I think, to Keir Starmer politically. You know, the idea of giving people something for nothing is, of course, attractive. What does it mean, in your view, in economic terms? And what are the downsides? Well, obviously, in terms of the energy crisis, there's no easy way out. The benefits of the price cap, or indeed Labour's policies, is the simplicity of it. 
If you contrast it, say, to earlier this year in the UK, the current government has already expended about £37 billion in three different fiscal packages. And lots of those, that money has been aimed at helping people out in terms of the energy crisis. Uh, but many of those help, areas of help have been very piecemeal. So the benefit of the price cap and Labour's approach is the simplicity. What's the argument against it? Well, in a nutshell, you can only intervene in one way, allow the price mechanism to work and try and stop it, or you try and ration the supply. What is happening here is that you basically have a price cap. Therefore, there needs to be a big transfer payment. The transfer payment is to the customers at the end of the day. The price cap is not targeting it in any way, shape or form. It's a universal benefit to any user, uh, as opposed to the current government's approach, which has been tried to be timely, targeted and indeed temporary. And the temporary aspect is the other part that you've touched on. When the price cap ends, or indeed when the government's current transfer payments end, what happens? Then there's a big adjustment or you have to continue it. So in a nutshell, there's no easy way out of it. The price cap is simple, but it's not timely in the sense of being targeted. And it basically still leads to a problem at the end of the six month period in the case in the UK. Obviously, you mentioned France and Argentina. Um, look, in Argentina, inflation is rampant uh, on a scale much more than here. Um, the price mechanism never really works fully in Argentina. The danger we have here in the UK is that you don't want to start, in my mind, to intervene and interfere too much with the price mechanism. Whether we like it or not, the price going up is the correct way of things working. But there's also, of course, Gerard, the whole question of supply. And very, very little has been said about supply, other than, of course, Keir Starmer wants to put more taxes on companies that could invest in future supply, which I don't approve of. But there's the other question here, isn't there? Yes, price, of course, is very important. But there's also strategy. There's also something called the national interest. And a very eagle-eyed viewer of this programme just reminded me overnight that Northumbrian Water is owned by a Hong Kong-based infrastructure company, as indeed is Southern Water. Uh, you know, remarkably, even UK power networks are 80% owned by Chinese companies. And I could go on and on and read you a list as long as your arm. So two points here. One... Why are we not talking more about future supply of energy? And two, does it make sense in strategic terms to allow Chinese companies to buy so much of our energy and critical infrastructure? All right, two different issues. The general point is that there are strategic industries, but we should basically be encouraging greater investment, whether it's from the public sector or ideally from the private sector. If it's from the private sector, then you need to avoid things like price caps. You need to avoid um, punitive taxation, such as windfall tax, and you need to avoid retrospective taxation. You would like to have predictable uh, taxation and also basically make sure that people know so they can plan ahead and invest. Clearly, sometimes you do need to take uh, prohibitive action, but that has to be the exceptional situation and ideally avoid it. When it comes to China, I think the big issue with China is this, yeah. that we need to have a mature, robust relationship with China. I would argue for a clear red line where on one side of the red line, we have defense, security, intelligence areas. And in many respects, they're off ground, shall we say, because they are basically very sensitive 
But on the other side of the red line, it needs to be made clear, we should allow business finance uh, to continue, shall we say, as normal, as long as those areas in which companies from overseas, whether it's Chinese or indeed from other countries, can invest, are not seen as being um, of problematic areas to the UK in the sense of defence, security or intelligence. Now, the whole area of energy is particularly important. If we look back to two, three years ago in China, we can actually learn the lesson from China itself. At the height of their problems with President Trump in terms of the trade relationship, China announced what was called the dual circulation policy. They felt that they needed to have self-sufficiency in three areas, food, fuel, and technology. So maybe we should learn from then. Yeah. Also, we should learn from the states about yeah. the need to invest more. And we should also learn from our own experience that the market mechanism does work and we should be investing more. Low investment, whether it's public or private, has been a problem in the UK for the last 30 or 40 years. 25, 30 years ago, we adopted this idea of what was called the Wimbledon approach. The idea was that we always had the best tennis tournament in the world, but British players never won it. It didn't really matter. It was here. We then adopted that policy in business. We didn't really care who was investing, who owned the asset, as long as they did invest here. But what we've seen in terms of energy and other strategic areas is that clearly there has not been enough investment, and therefore we do need to address that issue head on. The Daily Telegraph break the story that the Royal Navy will no longer be in the English Channel. All of the government's plans have fallen to dust. I asked you, can Truss or Sunak improve upon this? Some of your thoughts. One viewer says, you mean end the free taxi service? Yes, it's not just the Navy, although they couldn't physically take people, people on board. All they did was tow the empty dinghies back. What well, we've got, of course, border force and the lifeboat service. Difficult to see how they are anything other than a free taxi service. Sharon says, nope, if they keep going round in circles, they're not much optimism there. Susan says, government can stop these migrant crossings. Unfortunately, they are all too wimpish to do so. And Stuart says, no one in a position of power has any will to stop it. And that, uh, frankly, is what I think too. Now, we have been talking on this show over the course of the last few weeks about football, about women's football, and we've absolutely celebrated the huge success of the Lionesses winning that European Cup final. But there's been a heck of a row sparked by Graham Souness. Graham Souness, former footballer, former manager, now a pundit on Sky News. Now, he made some comments after a particularly rough and tough game of football that happened at the weekend and such is the outrage that Sky News have actually taken the piece down. But somebody at home recorded it, so we can listen to what Graham Sooners said. I played the game, and you see simulation, people throw themselves to the ground. I've not seen that in the two games today. It's, it's a man's game all of a sudden again. And the referee, I thought, had a fabulous game, other than something we'll point out later. I think we've got our football back, as I, as I would enjoy football. Men at it. Now, that's Graham Souness, always outspoken, a toughie, a man who played a very, very rough and tough game of football. And what he's saying is, actually, the referees are letting the players get on with it, letting the players effectively give each other a fair bit of a kicking, but albeit within the rules. When he says it's a man's game, is he demeaning women's football? I don't think he is. 
He's just saying there are two different types of football and he, as a former player, quite likes the rough, tough kind. But there's been a huge amount of upset. And, and that includes, you know, lionesses like Bethany England. Uh, you know, the pe people are very upset. They think it's disgraceful what has been said by Graham Soonest. Now, I have to say, I don't think he genuinely intended to cause any offence, but some do. And I'm joined by Shabana Hearn, Women's Super League football reporter. And, Shaban, I understand that you don't like what Graham Soonest said. I'm not a fan of what he said. I think if he were to be in that situation now, after all the backlash, um, perhaps he wouldn't have chosen to use those words. I completely agree with you that he didn't mean to cause any offence. He's not linking it to women's football. But when you say words like it's a man's game now all of a sudden and you've got a lioness, former lioness, sitting next to you, um, and after everything that happened, as you mentioned there, in the last three or four weeks, it sounded a little bit off. Actually, even my husband went, did he just say that? So I've gone through Twitter because I've had nothing but trolls all day for this. I've gone through Twitter. There's actually a lot of people, a lot of people who went, he shouldn't have said that. And it's dinosaur words. When we are where we are today in this world, everything is scrutinized and picked apart. In context, out of context, he still said it's a man's game. He didn't mean any offense. But I think the problem now is, Nigel, is that He's just sitting on his hands. You know, I wouldn't change it. I don't regret a word I said, and that's that. That's probably why it's snowballing even more so now. That may be true, but, you know, come on, Shiman, after the women's victory, I mean, it appeared for a couple of weeks that it was a women's game. I mean, I, you know, all he's saying is that a rougher, tougher type of football that that particular referee on that day allowed to happen was a man's game. And even if some people don't like it, don't we just get a bit too upset about things these days? Yeah, we absolutely do, but that's the world we're in right now. You know, with the job you're in right now, with broadcasters, with panellists, you kind of have to be careful what you say because people are waiting there, ready to pounce yeah. on you. And, and Graham Soonis is an outspoken man. Uh, I appreciate exactly what he's done for football and where he is in his role at the minute. Let me be straight right now. I'm not calling for his head. I don't think that he should be sacked for this. Good. But either way, Nigel, he has offended some people. You know, when you open your mouth and they say those words, if you do offend some people, had Karen Carney, imagine this situation said, uh, hold on a minute, Graham, right here, he would have probably said, this is what I'm thinking, oh, I didn't mean it like that. You know, sorry, I didn't mean it like that. Would have crushed it right yeah. then. It would yeah. have still been headlines, but everything would have <clears throat> moved on. Well, Shaban Hearn, can I thank you for taking a balanced and sensible position on this? And I hope thank that Karen. everybody else does <laughs> as well. <laughs> Thank you, because I think people get too excited about all of this. Now, something that I'm going to get excited about is what has happened in Minnesota. I found it... Well, sorry, sorry, Minneapolis. I find it rather hard to believe. Uh, this, of course, the home uh, of George Floyd. And now it appears, two years on from George Floyd, that Minneapolis public school teachers of colour will have additional job protections this upcoming school year under a contract that means they would keep their jobs rather than white instructors with more seniority. This seems to me to be racism against white teachers. Is this what we really want, the outcome of the George Floyd murder? I mean, do we actually believe this is going to bring societies back closer together, because I don't think it will do that. I think it'll lead to great division. Well, let's go to America and be joined 
by one of the greats, and I mean this, of American radio, James Golden, Aka Bo Snurdly, daily host of Rush Hour on 77 WABC Radio and author of Rush on the Radio after the years that he spent with that legend who recently died, Rush Limbaugh. James, welcome to the programme. Nigel, so good to be here. Good to see you, my friend. Good to see you. Now, what do you make of this? I mean, surely what we're after, surely isn't what Martin Luther King campaigned for, that we judge people on the content of their character, on their ability, rather than the colour of their skin. I mean, what on earth are they thinking about in Minneapolis? That doesn't apply to the left, Nigel, in this country or internationally. Now, what the teachers' union is saying that proposed this, this, this absurd contract is that this is supposed to be the remedy for past discrimination. That in the past, they discriminated against teachers of color would not, or people who applied for the jobs. And therefore, people of color are unrepresented in the school system. This, they see, is the remedy. So when they're layoffs, the white teachers will be laid off first, regardless of seniority. Obviously, it's absurd. Obviously, by signing onto this contract, the state has now endorsed state-sponsored racial discrimination. If there were a problem that could be proven in the past, there would have been no problem had the Minneapolis uh, Teachers Union and the school gotten together and say, we're going to find those specific people that we harmed, and we're going to make them whole. But to do this sort of blanket racist approach is absolutely absurd. And you're right, it is only going to inflame yeah. tensions and it is only going to create more divisions over something at a time when people should be trying to figure out how they can narrow the divisions instead of widen them. Well, James, I absolutely agree with that sentiment entirely. And certainly, you know, even if the assertion that in the past wrong was done, well, you know what, two wrongs don't make a right. James, when you look at just how divided America is on so many of these issues and how incredibly radical, genuinely radical, the liberal left have become. Do you see any prospect in the years ahead for some kind of healing process? I am, I am wildly optimistic about the future. I don't see, uh, for instance, in the, that it's in the cards for us to overcome these divisions overall because America has never from from our beginning, even before we left the embrace of Mother England, we were a divided nation. <laughs> and that has gone on through our entire history. We have been divided. What is what is troubling to people is though the 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 animus that now comes with that polarization. Before in this country, we had sort of a social contract that allowed us to disagree even passionately to disagree with each other without the hate, without a lot of this, uh, the additional rhetoric. And I do think that there is a yearning in this country for people to return to a more civil discourse. That does not mean, though, giving yes. up the division. That division is in our DNA as a nation. It is what we thrive on. And that division, by the way, is what helps push our nation forward politically. Because one side... If, if, if a side is totally defeated here, then they can make great leaps. But usually when you have this sort of division, things happen incrementally as opposed to major changes in the society.
Well, I must say, very wise words, as I would have expected, of course, from that great of American radio, James Golden. You're absolutely right, James. We can be divided. We can disagree. We can do it in a civil and decent manner. And that's perhaps what's lacking. Great to have you on GB News. Thank you. Now, a few more thoughts from you, the audience, coming in to the studio about whether Truss or Sunak are going to sort out the problem in the channel. One viewer says, come on, Nigel, you know the Royal Navy doesn't decide on their missions. They were instructed, probably because there are more important issues in the world where they're needed. Well, that's one of the points, isn't it? Actually, what, what, what the hell were we doing? You know, redeploying a chunk of the Royal Navy to this when there are far more worrying things going on in the world. And that could be in the seas of Ukraine. It could, in the end, of course, be perhaps even in the South China Sea. It could even be around Taiwan. Well, someone that knows a lot about what's going on in China and has given a big speech on it here in London today, and the man who solved the migrant crisis in Australia is their former Prime Minister, Tony Abbott. It's my favourite time of the day. Of course it is. It's Talking Pints. And I'm joined by the former Prime Minister of Australia, Tony Abbott. Tony, welcome to the programme. Thank you, Nigel, and cheers. Cheers. Mm. Very good. Now, we're sitting here just south of the river yeah. in the borough of Lambeth. Mm -hmm. That's where Tony Abbott was born, isn't it? Yep, at the General Lying-In Hospital, not too far from here. Uh, some years ago, I was... Uh, on my way to an appointment in London. I think it was actually to go and see Boris Johnson when he was the Lord Mayor. And I saw this old building, um, which had been turned into a hotel, but still, probably for heritage reasons, yep. they had a sort of a built-in engraving on this building, the general lying in hospital. And I thought, my God, that's where my mum told me I was born. So there you are. There yeah, are. there you are. There but you are. were one of so many families. Mm -hmm. that, and I think your mum was Australian originally, wasn't she? Look, m my mum was, uh, she was an Australian um, uh, dietitian. Yep. Who, in her early years of practice, came out to work in Britain, as so many Australians did then and still do. My dad was an Australian dentist who'd come to London to study orthodontics, uh, because in those days you couldn't actually do that in Australia. You can now, but you couldn't then. Dad, of course, was himself born in Britain, but his father had gone to Australia in 1940 uh, to work on the then BHP fleet. He was a merchant mariner and his family came from Newcastle on Tyne. Yeah, but Australia, I mean, your journey, you were already linked to Australia, but loads of Brits, the, yeah. you know, the £10 palms and all these people that e went to even, Australia e even in now, huge numbers. Even now, Nigel, uh, other than Australia itself, the most common country of birth in Australia is the United Kingdom. But that still remains. Still the case. And, and yes, in more recent times, we've had very large migration from China, uh, from India, but uh, Britain is still by quite a margin uh, the most common mm. place of birth for Australians, except Australia itself. And it explains why the link is the way that it is. Look, look I, the point I make, I mean, I make, a, I, I suppose, a wider point that anyone who speaks the English language is in some sense a Briton. The further point I make is that um, English-speaking countries may be juridically separate 
but they don't feel foreign. Uh, mm. No Australian mm. getting off the mm. plane at Heathrow feels that he or she is a stranger. And likewise, uh, I think uh, Britons getting off the plane uh, at Tullamarine or at Mascot feel pretty much instantly at home, even if they might typically whinge about the heat. Uh, but at the <laughs> moment, not, not at, the moment at the moment, <laughs> England is, Britain is hotter than, yeah. hotter than Australia. And, and can I just put in a plug for David Cameron? One of the conversations that I had with David Cameron when I was opposition leader and he was prime minister was about the passport queue at Heathrow, mm -hmm. because in those days, uh, Australians were in the kind of slow lane and EU people were in the fast lane. Now, I don't quite know how Cameron did it, but somehow, somehow um, we went into the same fast lane uh, as, as Britons and uh, gee whiz, it made a difference to, I suppose, the emotional warmth of the arrival well, I'm in delighted Britain. to hear that Cameron got something right. I, and that's cheered me up no end. Look, because... <laughs> you know, I, I, I regard David as a friend. Yeah. Uh, he, he did a wonderful job in bringing the Conservative Party back into government. And whatever, way, whatever you think about Brexit, um, David Cameron um, either... Well, he gave the people a chance to have their say. Um, while at the same time arguing against it. So in, a sense, so in a sense, he was a winner well, either he was, way. He was forced into it, wasn't he? But I mean, that's by the by. But, but you were a Brexiteer, weren't you? Well, look, um, this is actually a bit of a, a, bit of a sticky point because uh, and I shouldn't go into private conversations, but, sure. but uh, I was encouraged um, not to uh, support Brexit uh, in the lead-up to the vote and I was torn because emotionally I have always been a Brexiteer. So I ended up writing an article for the Times which I can't remember what headline the Times put on it but the headline I put on it was um, a Brexiteer's case for Remain because what I said back then was not that Britain needed Europe uh, but that Europe needed Britain, that the EU had become such a sclerotic mess mm. uh, that the only possible salvation was to follow the British way rather than the Brussels way. Anyway, I still remember uh, the day uh, the Brexit uh, vote came through and honestly it was one of those wonderful, exhilarating days when your heart sings because you think this is one of the truly great countries uh, saying we will reclaim our destiny. Wow. And the point that I always make when I'm in Britain, um, particularly to Britons who have spent too much time listening to the British establishment, is please get away from this defeatism and declinism. Uh, no country has had more impact on the modern world than this one. The world's common language, um, the mother of parliaments, the rule of law, the industrial revolution, the emancipation of minorities, all really pioneered in this country. And no country on earth has more reason to be proud of its history, uh, its achievements, and therefore no country on earth should be um, more ready to face the future with confidence than this one. It, for us and for me as a lifelong Brexiteer, you know, to hear that 
from mm-hmm. Australia and is, is, is wonderful. And mm-hmm. I agree with you completely and utterly. Mm-hmm. You are a man of great passions, of great beliefs and politics. You were going to become a priest, mm-hmm. but, but, but politics became I, the calling. I saw the dark, Nigel. <laughs> <laughs> well, a strange transition, yeah. isn't it? Somebody mm-hmm. who's you know, going into the priesthood and you finish up uh, in the game of politics. But, but politics is not a career. Politics is a cause. And one of the problems with modern democratic politics in the English-speaking countries is that too many people see it as a career, not a cause. And if you see it as a career, it tends to be about your promotion as opposed to about the ideals and the institutions that you are trying to serve. And so it was actually very natural for me, having decided that I really was a square peg in a round hole, uh, attempting to uh, live by the disciplines of Holy Mother Church, um, to then <laughs> go into journalism. And, you know, I was really uh, a sort of a, an engaged journalist. Uh, I, I wanted to write opinion pieces much more than simple news pieces. And luckily enough, uh, I was given that opportunity very young. So it was really a natural transition for me um, to end up in politics. If I think of, you know, people I know and their careers in politics and this great, let's face it, game of snakes and ladders. Mm. I mean, you've got to have ability mm. in politics. And I'm with you. I think, you know, I far prefer the people in it for causes mm. than those in it simply for careers. Mm. You've got to have passion, got to have ability. But at the end of the day, there is a really huge slice of luck, mm-hmm. I think, in politics, mm. in, more than most other aspects of life. It's about, are you there? in the right place, at the right time. Exactly right. You know, Churchill would never have been a great name in this country if Hitler hadn't invaded Poland, etc. But you, you know, Mm -hmm. after many years in politics, you reached the very pinnacle. Mm -hmm. You got to the top. And Mm -hmm. I'm going to show the viewers and the listeners can pick it up. This is the moment Tony Abbott announces he's about to become the Prime Minister of Australia. My friends, my friends, thank you. Thank you so much. I can inform you that the Government of Australia has changed for just the seventh time. (laughs) Well, you know, Tony, for somebody that's in politics yeah. and, and I absolutely believe you mm-hmm. that it was about causes mm-hmm. for you more than it was climbing the greasy pole mm-hmm. how good did that feel look it, it's it's an extraordinary moment but you know um, it, it's also if I may say so a sobering moment because a weight of responsibility does come down upon your shoulders and and yes it's a tremendous privilege but it is also quite a heavy burden because Uh, No one is more consequential in a democracy uh, than the Prime Minister. Mm. And your responsibility is from that moment forward to be not just a tribal chief, but to be a national leader. And yes, you've got a program, you've got principles, you've got values, but you, you, you are also got to be the Prime Minister for the people who didn't vote for you, as well as for those who did. No, absolutely. Well, you did it. You got Mm, there. mm, And mm. you've had some downs since and ups and downs. And that's the way of politics and way Mm. of life. And I'm sort of reflecting on what you just said. I mean, it it looks like Liz Truss, if you believe what everyone says, Mm. 
is going to become our Prime Minister on mm -hmm. the 5th of September. You've known Liz Truss because you had an advisory role yeah. to us on building trade deals yeah. post-Brexit and all the rest of it. Is she up to it? Look, I think she is. She was a fine trade minister. Mm -hmm. um, like all of us, I suppose she's been on a journey. Uh, there are some positions that she held well, in her youth that she wouldn't hold today. But in a sense, uh, a lot of people are made by those road to Damascus moments. And um, it's not where you start, it's where you finish that, that really matters. So I am very confident that uh, both of the candidates uh, would do a good job. Uh, but I, I certainly know Liz Truss. Yeah. And, and I am confident... Uh, that, that she is a solid conservative uh, who wants to get things done, uh, will be a worthy successor to Boris Johnson and has every chance of holding on to the magnificent majority that Boris Johnson that's a huge built. And, 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 and will do everything that's needed to build on the opportunities that Brexit should give to global Britain. One of them was to take back control of our borders, and we're being, mm -hmm. we are being made a laughing stock through the English Channel. Mm -hmm. uh, you know this very, very well. Yep. You had exactly the same problem in Australia. The difference was the distance to Indonesia was slightly bigger, mm -hmm. the boats were bigger, the numbers per boat was bigger. But yep. The principles were all exactly the same, and you mm -hmm. are the man that solved it, and you did it being condemned by the United mm -hmm. Nations, the European Union, you know, I mean, global abuse was thrown at Tony Abbott, mm -hmm. but you solved the problem. Does the British Conservative Party have the muscle to do this? Well, in the end, and I'm talking now about Australia. Yes. Uh, in the end, you have got to have the will to do it. And the problem was the previous government didn't have the will to do it. And I can remember going into a very early meeting of... Uh, very senior officials with heavy responsibilities in this area and I was told um, we might risk serious conflict with Indonesia mm -hmm. to which I said well so be it uh, if boats were coming from Australia to Indonesia do we think for a second that the Indonesians would hesitate in taking the strongest possible action to stop these boats um, and serious countries do not allow themselves to be taken advantage of by, in this case, criminal gangs who are smuggling people in for all sorts of nefarious purposes, as well as, yes, yeah. people who just genuinely want a better life. So, so we had the will, we had a plan, uh, we adjusted the plan uh, where necessary when the people smugglers kept scuttling the, their boats, uh, preventing the turnbacks that we wanted to do. Uh, we gave uh, them unsinkable boats, which we towed uh, to within um, a mile or so of Indonesia's yep. waters with just enough fuel to get back to Indonesia, and off they went. Now, um, this is not the Timor Sea. The English Channel is not the Timor Sea. Indonesia is not France. But one way or another... Uh, the British government just has to say that the way is closed. And uh, I am, I think the Rwanda deal uh, was certainly a big step in the right direction. It's a real pity um, that uh, uh, the legal work had not been done uh, mm. to avoid the jurisdiction of that European court. Well, but, I uh, but I understand yeah. there are steps in train 
uh, to avoid yeah, there's, anything there's like that. There's a bit of unfinished business. Mm. No, there really is. But what you did is an inspiration mm. to many, many, many of us. You talked today on China. You talked about the ominous problem that they pose. You've talked very openly about what we're doing in the name of climate change, given that China is building up to 80 mm. coal-fired power stations every year. But I've got one final thought for you, yeah. Tony. When the referendum happened back in 99 on whether Queen Elizabeth II would remain the head of state mm -hmm. in Australia, you campaigned very vigorously for that to be the case. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was you know, very pleased with the result, I must say. Mm -hmm. Do you feel optimistic for the future of the monarchy in Australia? Look, I do. Uh, it's the system in the end. Uh, it's not the personality and the character of the individual who occupies uh, the throne. It is a but, very but she is a good bit special. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. She has been a truly remarkable woman. And that wonderful statement she made on her 21st birthday, my whole life, be it long or short, shall be dedicated to your service and to that of the great imperial family to which we all belong. Yeah. Uh, a wonderful vow uh, made to the people of Britain and the wider Commonwealth and every day of her life, she's been true to it. So we all know no one lives forever. Uh, but I think that uh, almost out of respect for Her Majesty, uh, Prince Charles will be given a fair go. Mm. Um, I've met Prince Charles a couple of times. Uh, I think he's a very decent human being. Um, his style will be a little different oh, yes. from, from his mother's, but I think he is utterly immersed uh, in okay. the tradition. And look, uh, whether you look at the Queen, whether you look at uh, her father, whether you look at her grandfather, I mean, we've had, a, we've had a century of really outstanding monarchs who have been utterly dedicated to public service and I think in that sense, uh, Prince Charles will be very much his mother's son. Tony Abbott, thank you for joining me on Talking Pants. Thank you. Bit of time left for Barrage the Farage. Quickfire. Mark asks Tony, how would Australia deal with our migrant crisis? He said that already. Ryan asks, would you and Tony Abbott consider starting a political party to deal with the immigration issue? Well, uh, I'm not going to drag him into that one because that wouldn't be fair. I've got a minute left on programme. Mick asks, are dark forces in America trying to stop Donald Trump running for president? Yes, yes, yes. If Donald Trump announces he will not be the candidate in 2024, all of this will stop. And I have to say, I thought the FBI raid on Mar-a-Lago was nothing more than a fishing expedition. And I was genuinely shocked last night to discover they've even taken his passport away. After all, he wants to come to Scotland in a few weeks' time to play golf on those magnificent courses. So look, Pauline asks, what's the greatest achievement in your life so far? Just one, please, and be honest. Your greatest achievement, Tony? Well, I guess being Prime Minister is it's pretty, pretty good. good. It's pretty good. <laughs> but, but, but amongst other things, I was very happy that we did manage to stop the boats. People there thought it go. couldn't be done. For me, it's got to be in my lifelong crusade, something called Brexit, which in the end became popular. Hey, how about that? We're out of time. Mm -hmm.